Good morning. Whether you're joining us over the live stream on public television or here at the church, welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. This morning is our question box sermon where you all can submit questions and then Reverend Michelle and I will answer those questions to the best of our ability later on. We are a spiritual community dedicated to a free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I am Chris Jimerson. I'm co-lead minister here at the church, and I am thrilled to introduce our other co-lead minister, Reverend Michelle Legray, this morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm the Reverend Michelle Grave, your interim co-lead minister, and I am so excited to finally be here and be leading worship with all of you today. I especially want to welcome those of you who, just like me, might be new to the church, and all of you who are joining us remotely, whoever you are, wherever you come from, Wherever you find yourself on your life's journey, whichever your pronouns, whether you've walked in or rolled in or dialed in, whomever you love, you are welcome here. You belong here. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person. It's that tradition that I invite you to greet the holy among us, either in the comments online or simply by turning to those around you here in the sanctuary. Let us now greet the holy that lives in each of us this morning. Good morning. I'm Margaret Borden. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm your lay leader this morning. Please join me in the words to light the chalice. They're printed in your order of service. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our call to worship this morning is a quote from Peter Block, an American author, consultant, and speaker in the areas of organization development, community building, and civic engagement. Understand that the task is to shift the demand for the right answer to the search for the right question. This congregation has a set of religious values, transcendence, courage, community, compassion, transformation. And out of those values arose our mission statement. It is our common religious purpose. It guides our decision-making, it informs our ministries, and we say it together every Sunday. Let's do so now. 
Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. We have a story today about questions, about the kinds of questions we ask and who we ask them with. We really like questions in this church. We really like to ask each other questions. We like to listen, to hear what other people are saying. In our chalice lighting that we do in our class, we say we are the church of the listening ears, don't we? And yeah, I think so. We are the church of the listening ears. And we like to listen when other people ask questions. We like to listen for their answers when other people give us an answer to a question. And sometimes we may discuss that there's more than one answer to a question, right? So let's read this story and notice what kinds of questions you can notice. There's plenty of room, Quinn, if you want to come up. This is The Antlered Ship by Dashka Slater and the Fan Brothers. The day the Antlered Ship arrived, Marco wondered about the wide world. He had so many questions. Why do some songs make you happy and others make you sad? Why don't trees ever talk? How deep does the sun go when it sinks into the sea? But when he posed these questions to the other foxes, they grew silent. What does that have to do with chicken stew, they would ask. So Marco went down to the harbor to see the ship. Three deer greeted him at the gangplank. Marco wasn't surprised to learn that they were lost. We hope to hire a seaworthy crew, explained Sylvia, the captain. I'm afraid we aren't very good sailors. I will join you, Marco said. He thought to himself, I will search the seas for foxes who know the answers to my questions. A pigeon named Victor volunteered along with his entire flock. We want to have adventures, they cooed. Welcome aboard, Captain Sylvia said. We are going to a wonderful island with tall, sweet grass and short, sweet trees. When we get there, we'll eat a delectable dinner. But the voyage was more difficult than anyone expected. It rained. Waves crashed over the sides of the deck. Why is water so wet? Marco wondered. The pigeons weren't used to the hard work and went below decks to play checkers. <laughs> the deer worried about sharp rocks and other things and huddled in the bow. After days of drifting, the animals were damp and cranky. We should have stayed in the woods, Sylvia said. Deer aren't supposed to go to sea. We should have stayed in the park, added Victor. Pigeons aren't supposed to do hard labor. Marco eyed the deer and the pigeons. Foxes aren't supposed to be vegetarian, he said. Still, we must do the best we can. That evening, Marco made a warm and reviving stew. Should we look at the charts, he asked. We might find adventure here and trouble here, but we'll find the tall the island with tall, sweet grass and short, sweet trees here. And perhaps foxes, too, Marco thought. Foxes with answers. As they plotted their course, the wind picked up. 
into a big storm. In the morning, they came to the maze of sharp rocks, but the pigeons flew ahead, tracing a path to safety. The next afternoon, they came upon a pirate ship. <laughs> the ships clashed and crashed until the pirates turned and fled. That evening, an island appeared on the horizon with tall, waving grasses and short, swaying trees. We've found it, Sylvia cried. We've triumphed, Victor cooed. Do you see any foxes? Marco asked. The deer grazed and nibbled. The pigeons told stories of their adventures. Marco scoured the island for foxes. But he didn't find any. I have failed, Marco told Sylvia and Victor. No foxes, no one to answer my questions. What questions, Victor asked. Marco took a deep breath. Do islands like being alone? Do waves look more like horses or swans? And what's the best way to find a friend you can talk to? That last one's easy, Sylvia said. You make friends by eating together. I disagree, said Victor. You make friends by having adventures together. Maybe you're both right, Marco said. But I think you make friends by asking them questions. <laughs> well then, mused Sylvia, should we head home tomorrow? Or should we visit the island of scrumptious shrubbery? Are two adventures enough, asked Victor, or should we have at least one more? Is it better to know what's going to happen, wondered Marco, or better to be surprised? There were so many questions left to answer, and so many more to ask. So in the morning, they raised the anchor and hoisted the heavy sails. They knew now that the wind would come and go, the clouds would sometimes make marvelous swirls and sometimes make them wet, and that everything they hoped to find could be found aboard an antlered ship on the way to wherever they were going. The end. Please find a comfortable place to be. Place your feet flat on the floor if you can and if you will, so that you might feel more connected to the earth which nourishes and sustains us all. Close your eyes if you feel comfortable doing so, and take a deep breath in. as together we enter into a time of meditation followed by silence. Questions. The world is filled with so many questions. My heart is filled with wonder. My mind is brimming with curiosity. My soul is filled with awe at all there is to be known and is not yet 
and may never be. What am I to do with all these questions? My friend and yours sang us a song once as we sailed these starry seas, casting our questions into the deep. Amen, and blessed be. It is the practice of this congregation to invite anyone who wishes to, to light candles representing sorrow, joy, hope, remembrance, resilience, memory. Let us do so now as we quietly listen to the musical meditation. Our reading is from Rainer Maria Rilke, an Austrian poet and novelist from Letters to a Young Poet. Have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your hearts. Try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not look now for the answers. They cannot now be given to you because you could not live them. 
It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the question. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. Okay, so now's the time that um, we are going to attempt to answer your questions. <laughs> Notice the word attempt. <laughs> Here's our first one. Why was man born only to suffer and to die? <laughs> so I think this is a male problem and I'm going to hand it to Chris funny how I start out already in trouble <laughs> <laughs> this is a quote from a Kurt Vonnegut novel, which I'm going to assume was written at a time when the patriarchy was even worse than it is now. Um, so the first thing I would question in that question is that word man also. Um, I also would question those words why and only. Certainly all of us will suffer and all of us will die. Our universalist ancestor Benjamin Franklin is quoted um, although he wasn't the first to say it, as saying there's only two certainties in life, death and taxes. <laughs> to that I might add, share. Um, and certainly we will die. Um, but I'm not sure there is a why. Um, in fact, there is, I've just been reading some interesting research that death may not be what it appears to us, that... Um, Time and life may not be linear the way that we perceive them to be. That's a whole other sermon. And that the randomness of the universe may not be random, which kind of makes my head want to explode. So we'll talk about those at other times. But so I, I don't know that there's a reason. And then I question that word only. Because we don't only suffer and we don't only die. We love we experience beauty, we experience joy, we experience music that makes our heart soar. And so, as the poet said, the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Yes, we have to have the sorrow. It's part of our life, and it, it helps us to know those moments of joy and of love more deeply. And it's not the only thing. It's, in fact, what I would say is less than the joy and the beauty and the love in life. Let's see, another question. What do you think of the question mark they have just found in space, and what does that mean? <laughs> I think it's proof that God is a Unitarian Universalist. <laughs> Well, I can't beat that response. <laughs> I 
think it says something about us and our um, innate curiosity as human beings that as we go forward and explore, um, we see something that resonates with us. That's uh, that the shape makes sense, and we say yes. That's a question mark. <laughs> What keeps you awake at night? You want me to take that first, huh? Okay. Uh, my dogs. <laughs> um, seriously, I think what keeps me awake at night is the, the latching on to a sense of cruelty and calling it morality that we're seeing sometimes. And I... I can't help thinking about those barriers with the barbed wire in that river here in the state of Texas. They're pushing children back into the river. They're killing people, and people are applauding that, and that keeps me awake at night. That I don't understand, and it, it terrifies me. That and so much more. <laughs> On the, on the personal micro level in terms of day-to-day -day interactions, so often I lie awake at night thinking about my communication. Did I articulate myself clearly? Was uh, what I meant to say understood? Uh, was someone trying to tell me something that I didn't get and didn't hear? Did I... Did I miss something in a personal interaction? Um, and also uh, a lot of things about ministry. One of the things that's really important right now is uh, you're in your second year of intro ministry. And usually at this point, I would have had a whole year to get to know you um, and to build trust. And instead, we're sort of leaping in together. So this is part of why we're doing the question box to get started. And next week, I'll, I'll preach and talk a lot about who I am and uh, start to get to know each other a little faster, if that's at all possible. Oh. I can ask it. Okay. <laughs> Michelle, what are your goals for your time here? There are so many. <laughs> My goal in every church, every UU church I go to, is to uh, help it become an even stronger and healthier version of itself. That's always the overarching goal. Um, after that, one of the pieces that is most dear to my heart in terms of culture shift is doing a lot of the anti-racism and anti-oppression work. In the beginning, first month or two, it is actually asking a lot of questions, doing a lot of observing, um, trying to understand who you are. So I don't come in here and change things just for the sake of change. Um, the idea is to change things only if it's a way that makes you stronger and healthier and, um, and builds beloved community.
<laughs> I was sad to see that Reverend Michelle Service Dog died recently. Does she expect to get another one? Uh, yes, I do hope to. I have applied for another dog. I had um, a service dog named Bella from an organization called Needs, and uh, she was a mobility dog. Um, and I've applied for another mobility dog. It, COVID has wreaked havoc with the uh, program for training service dogs, so the wait is really long. Most likely I won't get matched until after I leave you, but I'm holding out hope that something will happen and I'll get matched earlier and that all of you will uh, be able to share in that. Um, obviously the next dog will be an individual different from Bella, but uh, Bella was certainly happy to be a pastoral care assistant as often as possible. <laughs> so, um, she added a lot of fun and joy in the in the congregations she served in the past. So, so I hope we'll get to do that together before I go. Great. I have uh, promised Michelle that I'll bring my dog, Louisa May Alcott, up so that she gets some puppy time. Although Louisa is not a service dog. She is a you service me dog. So. <laughs> And I won't bring the other dog, Benjamin Franklin, because he's too misbehaved. So, um, what is this co-lead ministry thing about? How have we done it so far, and should we do it in the future? That is a lot. So, um, there are different models of ministry, and one of the ways that Unitarian Universalism, especially in larger churches and larger organizations, is moving to is a sort of shared ministry. So rather than having a hierarchy where one minister reports to another, they may be co-equals. This is what John Alou and I were in the past year, um, and then Aaron reported to John Alou, and this is what we are doing this year, co-ministry. I will tell you, I love it because I think it requires some back and forth that isn't there otherwise. Um, and I think it's really great for the church in a couple of ways. It's great for me as a minister, in my opinion. For the church, I think that all of us as ministers bring a variety of skill sets and we're better at some things than we are at others. And when it's a co-ministry rather than one of those sets of skills taking priority over another set of skills because of the hierarchy, those skills have to be in conversation with one another so the church gets that full range of skills expressed more fully. Um, so I think that's a real advantage to the church. As we look at having approved the eighth principle and our commitment to anti-racism and anti-oppression, I also think the variety of ministers that would be available to this church in a co-ministry situation is going to be larger um, because there are folks that, let's face it, don't want to move to Texas. And also, let's face, this, face it, it's expensive to live in Austin, Texas. And so I think that's a much more attractive proposition for a potential minister to be coming as a co-equal. Michelle, do you want to add anything to that? Sure. Um I'm really excited for a lot of reasons, um, including having a partner with whom to reflect on how things are going in the congregation. Um, 
but primarily because of the anti-racism, anti-oppression aspect of doing the work together and trying to start to flatten out some of the hierarchy. Um, it is especially important as we think about power dynamics and uh, identities and roles to think about um, not having an assistant minister or an associate minister be one who has a greater number of marginalized identities than Chris, which can really, uh, really be problematic. Um, and I'll share that when I interviewed with this church, the uh, board interview team shared that they were interested in continuing to explore the possibility of co-ministry. And it was one of the reasons I was really excited about this church, and it's why I put you at the top of my list. There you go. I will add that uh, Michelle and I were talking about something, and I thought she said it, and I thought it was brilliant. You know, there used to be this thing that there had to be a head of household, and that was usually the male. Um, I said I don't feel the need to be head of household, and I don't need someone else to be head of the household. And I went home and told my spouse, Wayne, about that, and he goes, I know that's right. <laughs> Mike would be on board with that, too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There are over 400 songs in the hymnal. Why do we keep singing the same songs over and over? Can't we branch out and explore more songs? Well... Since I have no idea which ones you keep singing over and over, we'll see what happens when I choose them. I'm going to defer to that. <laughs> so. Oh, good. I get the easy one. Uh, what will happen to Reverend Chris if, A, the ministerial uh, search committee doesn't have a vote, in other words, a vote on whether to call me or not, B, Reverend Chris decides he doesn't want the gig, <laughs> C, the vote is held and, and fails to get the required 90%. What that means is there will be a congregational meeting if the vote is called. 90% or more of the people at that meeting have to vote to call me if that happens. Um, and D, the vote is held and Reverend Chris becomes our new settled minister. That is a lot. So there is going to be a flow chart in Housen Hall soon that will explore all these possibilities. I, I think I want to get at the gist of what I think this is asking. So let me, let me cover the two probably tougher propositions first. One is that the search committee and I decide not to go forward with a vote to call an inside minister, or two, that we go forward with that, but the vote doesn't get to 90%. In either case, the Unitarian Universalist Association recommends that that minister move on and that the church move on, meaning I would go into search, I would leave in those two scenarios. We have congregational polity, which means that's only a recommendation. We don't have to follow it. I have to say that that's one of their recommendations that I think is a good one for several reasons. I'm going to take a little bit more time here to go through what I think some of those reasons are. Um, first, and Michelle, please don't tell anyone, but ministers are human beings. And I can picture it being hard for someone like me that didn't get called to then stay in that church and then report to the person 
who got called in the position that they expressed interest in, right? I can also see it being hard on that person that got called to that position to be supervising the person that they know wanted that position. So I think just in human terms, that could be very difficult. I think in terms of what is best for the church and the minister, it's also a good recommendation because no matter how that vote goes or if there's no recommendation to even have the vote, there will be people that are unhappy about that, that are sad about that. And that unhappiness gets attached to that minister, and that minister then becomes a lightning rod against the new minister, even if they're trying their best not to be that. So I think it can be harmful to the church. And then finally, I would say just in terms of growth, um, I have had the opportunity now to be the lead minister for six months at one point when Meg was out sick. And for over a year now, a co-lead minister and the church has thrived. It has grown. I've gotten to engage in all of the aspects of ministry, and I really love that. And so I think it would be very hard for me in terms of my growth as a minister to go back to a more restricted assistant minister portfolio. And again, I don't think it would help the church engage in the kind of growth we've just been talking about with potentially even co-lead ministers. So I think those are all of the good reasons why, um, whether or not to be a vote or were that vote not to reach the 90% that we each would move on and continue with our spiritual and our religious growth. So anything you want to add to that? Sure. I'll add that if it turns out that Chris is leaving, I will be here and I will help you process the difficult months that will be coming for sure after that. Um, and if he stays, I will celebrate with you. <laughs> we'll have a great old party or something. Yeah, we will. We'll have yeah. a party if that happens. So speaking of sadness, the next question is, I miss Erin. Um, <laughs> what should we do? I miss her enthusiasm, her music, her enrichment, I think it says. Not positive. Um, yeah. It's part of life to say hello and goodbye and to grieve the people who have left us. And it's tough. And uh, and I get that. So you can uh, certainly talk with me about anything grief-related in terms of pastoral care. I know there's a grief support group here. I would... <laughs> considering what Chris just said about the status of things, especially on the border, that keep him awake at night. Um, I'll point out that she isn't very far away. She is still the executive director of Texas UGM, and uh, she will still talk with you if you show up at the Capitol or show up at a protest and do all that stuff. So get out there, and you'll get to see her. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we've had a couple of heavy questions. Let's go to one that's a little lighter. What hobby of yours would the congregation be most surprised by? <laughs> My hobbies are boring. <laughs> so I, I, I had to think about what would I would surprise people because, you know, I go to movies, I hike, I read, I write poetry. None of that seems particularly surprising. And the only thing I could think of is, I go to a gym three times a week, and I have a trainer that 
creates workouts for me. And one of those workouts is doing all this stuff on those Olympic gym rings where I hang from them and turn upside down and, as my spouse says, does things that nobody my age has any business doing. <laughs> um, and, and I actually liked that so much that I bought a pair of those rings and I didn't have any place to hang them except we have these rafters in our raised roof in our living room. So we have gym rings hanging down <laughs> in our living room and Wayne has to remind me to take them down before people come over and visit. So I guess that's my weird hobby. <laughs> um. So mine is part hobby, part work, ministry. Um, this started with hearing about somebody using a uh, Barbie doll to tell stories in their congregation. And when I looked into this idea, I noticed that I don't look like Barbie, like at <laughs> all. <laughs> So I continued to explore, I mean, like even just having short hair, right? It's really hard to find a doll with short hair. So what I did find was a set of genderqueer dolls that come with short-ish hair and then also wigs so they can transition among genders and sort of gender-neutral clothing, um, and I decided I would use those to tell stories in the church. And since we were, it was the pandemic and we were online, that meant setting up scenes and taking photos and then writing up a story to go with the slides that I would show, which is kind of a lot of work. So that's why I only do it a couple times a year. Um, but then the dolls needed accessories and props <laughs> and things like that. So I wound up buying a bunch of used Barbie stuff and sorting through that. So now, because <laughs> the genderqueer dolls had very few clothes. I mean, it wasn't like, it's not like Barbie universe, right? So anyways, because this question was submitted ahead of time, I brought one to show you. <laughs> Here's Reverend Michelle in robe stole with a hymnal under one arm and a blue water bottle under the other. <laughs> and here's Bella. Oh. Wonderful. We are coming to the close of our time. So let me say that if your question didn't get answered, please feel free to talk to us. We're happy to continue to answer questions. We had a whole group of stewardship questions, so I'm going to kind of group those together as, I la as our last one. Uh, the so they are, why should I make a pledge instead of just giving when I feel like it, and why am I asked to pledge in October for 2024? Um, the answer to both of those questions is that it really helps the church to plan if we know what people plan to give, which a pledge tells us, and if you tell us that before the year in which we have to put a budget together um, based on that giving. So one of the reasons for October is that we have to approve then that budget through the November pre-congregational meeting and the December congregational meeting. We can't create that budget until we know what people are planning on giving that next year. So that's why. Um, why do we continue to do stewardship the same way every year? Uh, spend money on Celebration Sunday, and why do we keep the same people in charge of the stewardship committee? Um, so we have done stewardship in 
various different ways, and we're varying it up a little bit this year. Instead of having just a celebration Sunday, we're having a commitment Sunday and then a celebration Sunday. And before that, we did it in different ways. One of the things that happened is the pandemic, where we just didn't want to switch things up in the middle of not even being able to be here in person. Um, we have switched stewardship chairs every three years or so. Liz, did you were you here four because of the pandemic? It was three. Okay. Um, and so um, Mary Overton is our stewardship chair this year. Um, one of the major reasons for that is she said yes. <laughs> also, she's good at it. <laughs> and that's in general the reason you see the same people there is they're the people saying yes. I think they would welcome other people to be on that committee. And that committee does have some turnover also. Um, there is good reason for some people to stay on for a while because it provides continuity. Um, so I think that that is helpful. So, for instance, Liz didn't just say, I'm done, bye. <laughs> She's still helping out with that. And then finally, Celebration Sunday is kind of like if you think about NPR and folks um, give away little gifts to individuals when they give. It's kind of a gift to give to us, but communally. Um, so it's to say thank you for your generosity and your stewardship. And um, I, I would also say that in relation to our overall budget, it is a tiny amount of money that we spend on that as a percentage. So that's why is we want to celebrate your generosity. Please join me in saying the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go now in peace, with love in your hearts, kindness on your lips, and compassion at your fingertips, blessing all others as you yourselves are now blessed. May the congregation say amen, amen. and blessed be. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.